so I hope you enjoyed your lunch. Still got some fruit up here. Plenty for seconds. But right now it's time to study. So if you have your Bible, turn it to Exodus chapter 28. Last week we did 26, 27, this week 28. Did I want to guess what we're going to do next week? <laughs> sharp. Yeah, sharp. Exodus 28. This week we're going to talk about clothing. We're in a, we're in a fashion conscious culture. Um, in fact, my, one of my least favorite words in the pop culture vernacular is fashionista. It's somebody describes himself as a fashionista, I just tune out because I don't feel like there's anything interesting about what they're about to tell me. But that's not true, at least in biblical times, because the fashion, the clothing that God talks about reveals in this section is supremely important and carries a lot of meaning. So we're going to look at a little bit of that. We're in the section of Exodus where God is laying out how he wants worship in Israel to be. He's laying out how he wants his people to approach him. And he's worked from the, the section that we're in, he's worked from the center of the tabernacle, the center of the tent, like we talked about last week, outward. So the center of the tent is this cube plated with gold on the inside. And the only thing that, it, that is in it is this empty box. I shouldn't say empty. There's some phone tablets and some manna and Aaron's rod will prove it later. But it's a box, and on top of the box is a lid, and the lid has two angelic figures looking at each other and kind of bowing, spreading their wings out, and that's it. That's all that's in the center of Israel's temple. Unlike the Canaanite temples and the Egyptian temples and the Assyrian temples and the Babylonian temples that had these huge ornate statues, images of their God, in Israel there is no image of God in the temple. Outside of that, there's this place where there's a constantly burning light, lampstand, menorah. And if we, when we read about it, it's a tree. It's basically a golden tree that's always illuminating God's presence. And right in front of that opposite is a table. And on that table is always bread. And so there's this, this symbolism of a, of a lamp constantly burning and a meal right outside of the very throne room of God, always ready. And then... Uh, it went on to describe the courtyard, and we talked about the, how the tabernacle was, had these concentric areas of holiness that were delineated with the sacred metals that were used. So the inner, most center function was gold, and then outside of that was silver, and then outside of that was bronze. Uh, and we talked about how that was symbolic of the vertical holiness of Mount Sinai itself that the tabernacle is to be the portable Mount Sinai that goes with Israel wherever they go. God is coming down to dwell with his people in their midst. But in order to do that, he has to set up buffers. He has to set up um, practices that will keep the profane from entering into the presence of the holy because the profane will be consumed by the holy. And by profane, I don't mean evil. I mean common, normal, everyday. The, 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 sacred, the, the delineation of Israel is not between sacred and evil. It was between sacred and regular. And what God is emphasizing in Israel through this whole system is that the regular cannot just barge into the presence of the sacred. Because the power of the sacred, the, <clears throat> the sacredness of the sacred is overwhelming. The purity of God is like a blast furnace that burns away all impurity in people that would approach him. That's why God is dwelling in their midst right now as this is being given 
in this exploding, like volcanic uh, pillar of fire on top of this mountain. So when you're tempted, again, I'll say it again, when you're tempted to read this section in a dry monotone, like reading directions from a cookbook voice, remember, this is being given to Moses while he is in the middle of a firestorm. And God is revealing this to him. And he is standing in the middle of this furnace that's consumed an entire mountaintop. So this is not just boring detail or random details. It's supremely important, at least to God and his people Israel. So God has moved through these different things that he wants built. Now he's going to talk about the people that he wants to set apart to operate those things in this portable Mount Sinai. Chapter 28 says, Have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. Now, gold, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen. That's the material of the tabernacle. That's the material that all last chapter we just saw was used to make all of these things in this structure. So the priest, Aaron, the high priest, and his sons, the assistant priests, they are going to be clothed in the same material as the tabernacle. They're going to be an extension. They're going to be a tabernacle, a living tabernacle extension. They're going to be a part of this structure by virtue of being of the same material. Uh, this is what we're about to read is the, the outfit for the high priest. And the high priest is going to be the one who represents Israel before God and represents God to Israel. The high priest is going to be considered the closest thing Israel has to the heavenly man who can walk into the holiness of holy, holy of holies in the presence of God and minister on behalf of Israel as a whole, as a nation. And that's how he was coming to be seen. The high priest had that role. He is the one who, who symbolically enters into the throne room of heaven itself once a year, taking the people upon himself, quite literally, as we'll see in a minute. Huge implications for that office, that role. When we read the New Testament, we find out who the ultimate high priest actually is and what he literally did. But at this point, we're just in the hints and shadows phase in history. And this is what this high priest is going to look like. First garment they talk about, the ephod. Make an ephod of gold and a blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, finely twisted linen. The work of a skilled craftsman. It's the same description of the tabernacle, last chapter. It's to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it, of one piece with the ephod and made with gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with finely twisted linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in the order of their birth. Six names on one stone, six remaining on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. 
Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Make gold filigree settings and two braided chains of pure gold like a rope and attach the chains to the settings. Aaron, a stone on each shoulder, like shoulder pads almost. The names of the children of Israel carved on each stone, six on one, six on the other, the tribes. Literally, Aaron is carrying, the high priest is carrying the people before God, bearing them on his back, almost like a yoke that you put on an oxen. It is literally, this effort is placed over his shoulder and hangs from his shoulder and, uh, and is attached around the waist. So it's this, he's, he's carrying Israel on his shoulders. That in and of itself is hugely symbolic of what the high priesthood in Israel is supposed to be. The high priesthood of Israel is supposed to be a servant. High priesthood in other cultures and other cultic settings existed to live off of the people's givings and to exploit the people and to take advantage and to be in wealthy status and to be lifted up. But the high priesthood of Israel is intended to be pulled down by the weight of bearing the entire nation on their shoulders. There's symbolism in that, and it follows through even today to clergy. If you see, for those of you that come from high church backgrounds where they wear robes and vestments, you'll see creatures with the stole around their neck, a good collar. That's supposed to be symbolic of the yoke of an oxen taking on the burden of carrying the spiritual well-being of a congregation. All of this stuff is symbolic, and we've lost that in this day and age, and usually it's just done in fashion or to elevate the person above the congregation. But in reality, in, in the visual vocabulary of the Bible, the carrying on the shoulders represented servant leadership and the burden that the high priest would have to bear. Then attached to this effort is the centerpiece of this whole thing, verse 15. Fashion a breastpiece for making decisions, the work of a skilled craftsman. Make it like the effort of gold and of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen. It's to be square, a span long and a span wide, and folded double. Then mount four rows of precious stones on it. In the first row, there shall be a ruby, a topaz, and a beryl. In the second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and an emerald. In the third row, a jasmine, an agate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row, a chrysolite, an onyx, and a jasper. Mount them in gold filigree settings. There are to be 12 stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal, the name of one of the 12 tribes. Now, if you're reading a different translation in the NIV, those stone names were different um, because they're not all able to be identified. We actually honestly don't know all the individual stones. So whenever people start to make a big deal about the symbolism of each individual stone and what it represents and goes and all, they're just, they're blowing smoke. We don't know what most of these stones were. That's why they're translated differently in different translations. Um, they didn't have the, the, the geology that we have that classifies and categorizes all of these minerals by their scientific name. But these are appropriate guesses, and these are the types of stones that were considered precious in the ancient world. Now, interestingly, in Ezekiel chapter 28, so the other ebook in the Old Testament, 28 chapter, just like this 28 chapter, is, is a description of the king of Tyre. That, that God gives a prophetic description of this mighty, rich, opulent king. And God likens him. God uses this, this, um, this imagery of a high priest ministering in the Garden of Eden itself to describe this king. 
And it says you were in Eden, and then it lists these stones surrounded by them. So these stones have a connection to the imagery of Eden, of, of richness, of, of the unmediated presence of God, of, of value, all of that. You can check it out later. You can read Ezekiel 28 and Wilson. That's where people read into that later that it was talking about Satan, but it says flat out it's talking about the king of Tyre. Um, regardless, though, this Eden imagery is present in this description of things like the gold and the rich stones. That's a biblical tradition. And so there, the fact that the Holy of Holies is loaded with Eden imagery, this is just another example of that. that the Holy of Holies is symbolic of what was lost in the fall when man and woman were kicked out of the garden and cherubim were, block, were blocking their way to get back in. Now we have that same thing. There, there's this, this representation of that. And the priest on his chest has this Edenic symbol, these 12 precious stones, each one bearing the name of a different tribe of Israel. And they're on top of this. Basically, it's a folded square pocket. It's, it's a rectangle folded in half, 12 stones on the outside, and inside it goes the center of this whole thing. Verse 22, for the breastpiece make braided chains of pure gold, like a rope, make two gold rings for it, and fasten them to the two corners of the breastpiece. Fasten the two gold chains to the rings at the corners of the breastpiece, and the other ends of the chains to the two settings, attaching them to the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front. Make two gold rings, attach them to the other two corners of the breastpiece from the inside edge next to the ephod. Make two more gold rings, attach them to the bottom of the shoulder pieces on the front of the ephod, close to the seam, just above the waistband of the ephod. The rings of the breastpiece are to be tied to the rings of the ephod with blue cord and connecting it to the waistband so that the breastpiece will not swing out from the ephod. This thing is tied to, connected to them with these rings and this blue, uh, this blue thread. Verse 29, whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Also, put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece so they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus, Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. So inside this pocket that's covered with the precious stones, tied to the high priest's heart, inside there are these things, the Urim and the Thummim. Now, if you have a study Bible, it should tell you basically, we don't know what these are. If it says any more than that, it's conjecture and making stuff up because we don't know what these are. There's all kinds of different guesses. They're, they're, we know that they were for making decisions, and that's all. So they could be little carved stones, they could be little pieces of rock, they could be little pieces of wood, they could be sticks, they could be, it could be anything. Urim and Thummim, the word literally, Urim is the plural form of light. The word for light is Ur, Urim means lights, and Thummim is either, it could mean darks, or it could mean uh, completeness or perfections, literally. But interestingly, those Urim and Thummim are also Aleph and Tau, the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So it would be, could be like the A's and the Z's, so to speak, in English. Uh, it's all conjecture. We know that at some point they were used for making decisions, and based on other ancient Near East methods of divination, it's likely that a question would be asked, and that the, the priest would reach in, or would shake, or would you know some, somehow pull out 
the stone or the worm, the stone, if they were stones, if they were rocks, whatever they were, and it would give God's answer. Maybe it was a yes or no. Maybe they were different letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and it would spell out the We don't know. And one of the things that's helpful, one of the reasons I think it's helpful that we don't know is because the first thing people would do if it told you what they were and how they worked would be to try to recreate it. Who wouldn't want a magic eight ball that was built from the Bible, right? That's what it was. Who wouldn't want the ability to just go, okay, God, should I take this job in Raleigh or this job in Columbia? Shake, 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 pour out. Oh, there it is, Columbia. It would, it, God doesn't ever spell that out. He doesn't give it because this was only to be used with the high priest and only as a third string option for discerning the will of God. The first string was the written revealed word of God. The Torah, the Ten Commandments, the instructions, that should determine how people are to live. That should determine how cases are to be judged. The second string option would be the word of a prophet, a known, recognized prophet who had a proven track record of giving correct oracles and who also aligned with the written word of God. And then if those cases were too hard or if God wanted to communicate something very specifically, then there were times when he chose to use the high priest in his consecrated role through the use of these things called the Urim and Thummim. And that's all we know. We can't read more into it. We can't try to recreate it. We know casting lots was a biblical practice in those days, and, and, and we know that, I mean, heck, even the disciple that replaced Judas was chosen by casting lots. But Scripture never gives us directions for how to do that. It just says that they did it. So it's an example of where the Bible reports things without telling us, now you go do likewise. So as close as we can tell, though, this was how the high priest would make national decisions for the people. And it was done in the tabernacle, it was done in the holy place, and it was done under the consecration of God. Because remember, Israel didn't have a king. At this point, they don't have a king. Who's going to make the decisions? Who's their ruler? God is their ruler. Well, how can God make decisions? By communicating to the high priest who enters his presence on behalf of the people. This is before the democratization of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This is before everyone got a little gift of the Spirit that was a believer. No, no, no. That's one of the benefits of the new covenant that we take for granted. This is pre, this is Sinai covenant. This is when the Holy Spirit still would come upon certain people, but only temporarily and only to fill them with wisdom or skill or knowledge for certain purposes. But was it a living, ongoing, daily reality? This is before that temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. This is when there is still a huge gulf between the Holy God and his regular common people. We live on the other side of Pentecost from that. So we don't always appreciate the difference between their situation and our situation. But the author of Hebrews makes a great deal about the difference. And talks about things like us being able to approach the throne of grace with confidence. That was blasphemy in the Old Testament. You never approached it with confidence. So monumental shift from where they are to where we are has taken place. The priest, when he represented the people before God with these 12 stones on his chest, each with a tribe of Israel, and six tribes on one shoulder and six on the other, when the priest went in before God, he was not recognized by his own name. He was recognized by the names of the people he bore. He did not stand as Aaron the priest before God. He stood as the people of Israel before God. Collectively, he was the identity of all of Israel in the presence of God. 
Again, that's a huge implications for your biblical theology. Before Israel was ever a people, Israel was a person. We met him in Genesis. His name was Jacob. It got changed to Israel. Now, the high priest, the high priest, rather than being a person, is also the people as a whole. These two streams of thought are going to run together in the New Testament when we meet the ultimate high priest, who happens to be the true Israel, Jesus the Messiah, who will take on his shoulders and into his heart the names of his people and will take them literally into the very throne room of God, into the literal holy of holies, in the literal heaven where God literally dwells, not a tabernacle temple on earth that was meant to symbolize uh, or model that. So these themes of theological uh, insight and imagery all coalesce in Jesus. And that's how the New Testament can talk about us being in Jesus. How can you be in a person? Well, you can be in him the same way the Israelites were on or in symbolically Aaron as he carried them in. You identify with the Israel of God who is Jesus the Messiah. That's all of the symbolism that's flowing, pulsating through the Bible spilling over into the New Testament, that we miss it because we don't know the Old Testament and the source of that imagery. I'll show you another example in a minute because I think we have time. I'm going to move on to the last uh, remaining garments. Verse 31, make the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth with an opening for the head in its center. There should be a woven edge like a collar around the opening so that it will not tear. A big blue poncho. That's what he's saying. Make a big blue poncho and sew the edges so it won't tear anymore. That's going to go on, so you're going to have on the outer layer, the ephod, the breast piece. Under that, you're going to have this blue robe. Uh, make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe with gold bells between them. So pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell, all the way around the hem, the whole thing. The gold bells and pomegranates are going to alternate around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sounds of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. As long as they can hear the bells ringing when he's in there, things are good. It means he's not dead. If something goes wrong, if he enters the holy place without permission, in an unauthorized manner, without being consecrated of his sins for any reason, and those bells stop ringing, he's dead. This is why they would tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest before he goes in. Because if those bells stop ringing and he died, who's going to go in and get him? Somebody else goes in, they die. Somebody else goes in, they die. So they would actually have the rope to drag him out just in case. This is the unapproachable holiness of God uh, being built into the very outfit that the high priest himself is wearing. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it, attach it to the turban. It's to be the front, on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually, so they will be acceptable to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. This is going to be like right on his forehead, literally on his forehead. It says, holy to the Lord, consecrated to the Lord, set apart to the Lord is what that means. And because he's going to be the one who's going to take the offerings and, and through the whole system, he'll be overseeing all of it. And the blood of those offerings, he will actually go in and present to the Lord. So this is like a big billboard on his head. Um, weave, the tunic, weave a tunic of fine linen and make the turban of fine linen. 
The sashes to be the work of an embroiderer, make tunics, sashes, and headbands for Aaron's sons as well to give them dignity and honor. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them, not before, after. Garments come before the person because the priesthood was not specific to people. It was to be transferred. It was an office that was lived out and carried out by people in a long line of descendants. So the garments are more important in this case than the actual people wearing them because the garments represent the office. This is the president. The office of the president is bigger than any one man who occupies that office. It's the same thing with the priesthood in Israel. Uh, consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. And then so you've got uh, ephod, you've got breastfeeds, you've got this blue poncho, you've got turban, sash, belt tied around it, and then underneath it you've got a tunic, which is like a normal robe. And then underneath that, the last part, make linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants. The priests of Israel wore underwear. That may seem like we take it for granted because I guarantee you your preacher preaches in underwear every Sunday. However, well maybe, the robes, you can't tell. But the reason in the ancient world, the priests of Baal, the priests of the different local Canaanite deities did not wear underwear or clothing sometimes because their entire religion, their entire form of worship, as we said over and over, was bound up in the fertility of the gods and goddesses. And if you wanted to get the gods and goddesses to do things that fertile people do, then you did things that fertile people do on the earthly plane in order to entice them to do the same thing in the heavenlies. And then it would rain, and then the ground would get pregnant, and then your crops would grow from the seed. All of this Baal worship in the Old Testament, Asherah worship in the Old Testament, Malach, Chemosh, all of these was tied to the fertility of the land. That meant that the priests who represented the gods to the people had to represent the type of God that they were serving to the people, which meant that if they served a lustful, sexual, fertile God, then they had to be lustful, sexual, fertile priests. So they would minister in various stages of nakedness. They would perform various acts of sexual immorality, all of that as a form of holiness Temple prostitutes were actually called Kedashim, holy ones, in the Old Testament. They would do that in order to appease the gods and get the gods to do what they wanted them to do. Israel's priesthood, on the other hand, is going to be completely different. They are going to be robed in the very things that God's mountain itself is robed in, and they're going to go in, no incantations that they utter, no special things that they do that are magical. They're going to go in and they're going to offer the sacrificial blood to God on the altar on behalf of the people and vice versa. So the priesthood in Israel is incredibly different. Check this out though. We have two minutes, so I want to show you this. If you have your Bible, turn to Zechariah all the way at the end of the Old Testament. Last, one of the last of the minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So just before the last book of the Old Testament, there's a book called Zechariah. And the very last chapter of Zechariah, one of the last writing prophets in the Old Testament, very last chapter, talking about looking forward to this time after God's judgment, when God pours out His Spirit and His blessing on all people, and this, this, this promise that the prophets longed for, we read, 
verse 20, on that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty, and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. On that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. Now, there's a ton there to get into, but the thing I want to point out is this promise. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. And the cooking pots everywhere will be like the cooking pots in the temple. Zechariah sees a vision of when God's holiness does not, no longer is confined to the temple precincts, but is rather diffused throughout all of Israel and all of Judah. So that even the bells on the horses are inscribed with the very same thing that was inscribed on the high priest's forehead. The utter mark, uh, the, the most supreme mark of holiness, of, of, of consecration that only the high priest wore, only on his forehead, only when he was ministering in the Holy of Holies, Zechariah looks forward to a time when that same holiness, it will even be on the horse's belts, which is a very common, dirty, normal implement. And the pots and pans and houses will be like the gold pots and incense burners and, and implements of the tabernacle itself. In other words, the holiness of God in Zechariah's vision, which is the vision without the details spelled out, is going to spill out to all the people. And it says there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord, meaning until that time there had been. Canaanites in the house of the Lord. And Canaanite had become by that time a term for describing a profane, an idolater, an unclean, someone who rejects the Lord. And God's going to say in the future, it's not going to be the case. My holiness, my Israelness, my high priestliness is going to extend outward to the most common of common. And so we see Joel prophesied it, and then Peter gets up at Pentecost. Everybody's speaking in different languages, preaching the gospel in different languages. And people are like, what's going on? Are these people drunk? And Peter stands up and he goes, no, they're not drunk. This is what the prophets were talking about. This pouring out of the Holy Spirit, it's happening right now. Here's what it looks like. And he cites Joel and, and, and it says, you know, the, the apostles would preach from the prophets. And they would basically say, hey, the things that the prophets were talking about would one day happen, they started. And they started here in Jerusalem and they would go out to the ends of the earth. That's the age that we live in. These, on that day, in that day, the day of the Lord, that's the age that began at Pentecost. And it's the age in which we find ourselves living in now. It has implications when people say, oh, do you think we're in the end days? You can say, sure we are. They started with Peter. He said so on Pentecost. And they'll, they'll go until Jesus returns. And right now we're in that time, those last days when God's spirit has been poured out. And that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have entered into covenant with Israel through their Messiah, who is the ultimate high priest, who went into the ultimate holy of holies, then you become part of him. He becomes part of you. There's this relationship of intimacy. And, and you assume the holiness that the high priesthood in Israel could only look forward to and long for as a future coming reality. 
We're going to look more next week at what that looks like when those priests get actually ordained and consecrated. But we're over by two minutes, so get back to work. Have a great week.